Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Suppose, suppose you were hanging out in the first century, and you're just hanging out in Ephesus. Remember, that's where we were last week. So, you're just hanging out in Ephesus and you're with some friends and you've decided in the first century you're just going to take a tour of sort of the western part of Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. And so you're, you're sitting around in Ephesus and somebody in your party, somebody says, hey, let's go up to Smyrna. Let's just take a trip up to Smyrna. Besides, I, I hear they claim that they are the birthplace of Homer. That famous Greek poet, Iliad Odyssey. And I hear it's just beautiful. Why don't we just take a trip up there since we're, we're kind of doing this tour of western uh, part of Asia Minor. And so y'all say, oh, okay, let's do it. And y'all make arrangements. And so you travel north about 35, 40 miles. And you get to Smyrna and you get to, you see Mount Pegasus there. And then all of a sudden you see it. Man, this beautiful city set in the hills foothills of Mount Pegasus, and you just stand there for a minute and you're taking it in and you're looking at it and somebody goes, hey, you see the crown of Smyrna? You go, yeah, I see it. The crown of Smyrna, those beautiful buildings that were sort of lined, that made it look like it was just a crown, the top of a crown of a city. And someone says, yeah, but look, there's the necklace of Smyrna. And you go, yeah, isn't it beautiful? And the necklace of Smyrna, those streets that were just perfect laid out perfectly. And there was this one street that was just gold and it ran along and it sort of hung there and it looked like you're looking at this crown and, and, and below the crown it looked like this necklace and these beautiful buildings on one end, this great temple to Sybil. On the other end, this great temple to Zeus. And you just stand there for a minute and you're looking at it and you're going, wow, what a beautiful, beautiful city. Man. First century, you wouldn't have had a, a phone, you wouldn't have had a cell phone, you wouldn't have had an iPhone, so you, weren't, you wouldn't be taking selfies and all that kind of stuff. You, you wouldn't be uh, posting it on Facebook, you know, you wouldn't be chatting with friends and, you know, there was no Snapchat, so, you, so you, you wouldn't be doing any of that. You would just be standing there and thinking, man, what a beautiful place, what a beautiful city, what a beautiful setting, just tremendous view of the city of Smyrna. Smyrna was beautiful. Smyrna was situated right there on the coast. 
It's situated right there. If you look at a map of modern-day Turkey, it's on the western side right there on the coast. Uh, it's situated about where the modern city of Izmir is located right now. And it's just north of Ephesus, just north of Ephesus. There were rumors and traditions said that Smyrna was founded by an Amazon who gave her name to the city. Over the years, Smyrna was an early, early Greek city. And, and, and the Greeks, their cities were like states. They were called city-states. So it was like, a, like its own little country. And so Smyrna was an early Greek city. And Smyrna had experienced wave after wave after wave of invasion. Where it was located on the coast, it just, you know, it was just sort of a place where people would come to that part of the world and they'd come ashore and Smyrna had wave after wave of invasion. Smyrna was destroyed in the 6th century BC. Just destroyed. It lay there, sort of like a village. Under Alexander the Great, Alexander the Great's conquest of the world, under Alexander the Great, about 280, 290 BC, Smyrna's rebuilt. And it was rebuilt to the beauty that you would have seen in the first century. It was a planned city, which was unusual in the ancient world. Most cities just happened. Families, village, and then all of a sudden, boom, you know, you start building. And there's just, there wasn't any planning. And this, Smyrna was just the opposite. Under Alexander, it was a planned city. It was beautiful. It was laid out. The streets were laid out at right angles. I mean, it was just a beautiful thing to behold. It competed with Ephesus, and it competed with Pergamon to be the top city in Asia Minor. In fact, there was this little competition that went between these three cities. You remember last week in looking at Ephesus, I told you Ephesus, think about New York City. Maybe in our context where we are, you might think of New Orleans. Vanity Fair, New Orleans, transient, party, great, you know, this and that. And so Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamon, which was the actual capital of Asia Minor, they competed with each other. We're going to be the top city of Asia Minor. And they would all tout their, 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 their great things. Smyrna was wealthy, beautiful. Smyrna was extremely, fiercely loyal to Rome. And Rome rewarded Smyrna in 23 AD and gave Smyrna the right to build the first temple to Emperor Tiberius. Now, we have to back up just a bit because what Smyrna was also known for was it was a center of emperor worship. Now, what was emperor worship? After Augustus died, the Senate in Rome voted to make Augustus a god. And from that point on, every emperor who came after Augustus claimed to be god. And so what developed around this was the cult of emperor worship. Now, some went further than others. If Revelation's written in the 90s, and it's written during the time of Domitian, Domitian made it mandatory that every citizen of Rome worship the emperor. And there was a little ceremony attached with this that, that, had, that, that had sort of developed, and it went something like this. As a citizen of Rome, you would go into a temple and you would burn incense on an altar. And after you would burn incense on the altar, you would say, Caesar is Lord! And they would hand you a certificate. And you were required to do that once a year. Now, the early Christians, when persecution hit, they weren't persecuted because they said Jesus is Lord. Romans didn't care. Jesus is Lord, fine. So is Caesar. 
So is Zeus, so is all the other gods. Rome was polytheistic. They, they not only had their gods, but they would take your gods. And they would just make this big old pantheon of gods. And they would sit back and say, wow, look at this, isn't this great? Where the Christians got in trouble, and where they got in trouble in Smyrna is because these early Christians said, Jesus alone is Lord, not Caesar. Ah, wait a second. You see, to be a loyal Roman citizen, you couldn't say that. So this emperor worship developed, and it grew, and it grew. And you, if you were going to be a loyal Roman citizen, and you were going to have a job, and you were going to be able to sort of move up in society and, you know, have sort of a secure place in Smyrna, then you definitely, once a year, were going to go participate in the ceremony. So what are Christians to do? What do we do? I mean, the ringing in their ears had to be, you deny me, I'll what? Deny you. I mean, by this time, they, they, they've read some of the letters. Paul's been writing. They, they would have had the Old Covenant. They would have had the Old Testament. They would have known full well about idolatry. But yet, what are they going to do? They're in this city. They're in this place that was known for emperor worship. Not only were they known for emperor worship, but Smyrna was one of the cities that persecuted Christians the most because of their refusal to participate in emperor worship. Beautiful place. Man, something to behold if you looked at it. But if you were a believer, and you lived in Smyrna, you had some choices to make. You had some choices to make. Am I going to try to keep my job and keep my mouth shut and just go along with this thing and participate in it? After all, we know deep down Caesar's not Lord and Jesus is the only Lord, right? So what's the harm? Just go through the ceremony, say it, get my certificate, and go to work. Keep my mouth shut, keep my head down, and I keep my family fed. Stand out. Make waves. I lose my job. I lose my position. In society, and my family probably becomes poor, we become beggars, and who knows, we probably in the first century, you know what would have happened. You would have ended up a slave. Do you hear something of a little bit of familiarity in that today? You know how many believers, how many Christians are faced with something like that? Yeah, right here. Keep my mouth shut, keep my head down, I keep my job. If I speak out and I say this is not right, and if they say, why do you say it's not right? It's not right because God is a God of truth and righteousness, and this is not right. Or you're asked to do things, you're asked to participate in things, and you say on the job, I can't do that. I can't participate in that. Why not? Well, I'm a Christian, and I can't do that. You're asked to perform a service for a same-sex marriage. And you say, I can't do that. I'm sorry, I'm a Christian and it, I can't do that in good conscience. I feel like that, that somehow violates my faith. And, and we've already seen what happens, right? You're a student sitting in a college classroom. You have an Islamic professor. And the Islamic professor says that Jesus Christ, his crucifixion is a hoax. 
And that what we need to do to homosexuals is line them up and shoot them and kill them. And you go and complain to the president, and the president kicks you out of the university and says you are the rebel rouser. It's happening. Choices are being made. It's not only happening in jobs and schools, it's happening in families. There are children who are coming to faith in Christ, and what do they tell their parents? What do they say to their parents who have been antagonistic towards anything to do with Christianity? What does a wife tell her husband who's antagonistic towards the Christian faith? And she knows good and well, if she comes out and says, I'm a Christian... Vice versa, what does a husband tell his wife who has now become a believer and the wife has no, wants nothing to do with it? Choices need to be made. The line is getting clearer and clearer and clearer. What choice are we going to make? What choice are you going to make? Well, here sitting in this beautiful city as a church. I was asked a question last week about Ephesus, and it's not like, don't think like, uh, like today, like we would think of Madison. And there's churches everywhere, right? I mean, there's churches, there's this church and that church, the Baptist church, Methodist church, Presbyterian church, and all that sort of thing. Don't think like that. In Ephesus, there was one church. There's one group of believers there. In Smyrna, there's one group of believers. It's not like there's, there's multiple churches here. We're still first century. We're still first century. So it's not like there's multiple congregations. There's one. Ephesus, this proud congregation. Sterling doctrine. I mean, they had it. You looked at them, they had it. And you go, man, if there's a church, if there ever was a church, that's a church. Self-sufficient, confident. And yet Jesus says you've left your first love. I have this against you. You're doing great when it comes to doctrine, but you've left your first love. You no longer cultivate that relationship with me through things like Bible reading and prayer and going to church and worship. You no longer do that. You've left your first love. And so for you, now, all your relationship with me is nothing more than duty. You do it because you feel like you have to. You're not doing it out of love for me. And so there's this congregation. But you know, one of the differences between Ephesus and Smyrna, there was no persecution in Ephesus. There's persecution in Smyrna. This little church is being persecuted. What's interesting is when you look at the seven churches, remember I told you last week, if you kind of look at them, the first and the last one, they're in bad trouble. Ephesus and Laodicea, they're in trouble. And then you have Smyrna, the second church, and you have Philadelphia, the sixth church. These two churches, nothing bad is said about them. But of all the seven churches... These are the two most persecuted churches. The most persecuted churches. And yet, they appear to be loving Christ and following Him in the midst of incredible, incredible difficulty. So, what are you going to do? You're sitting there in Ephesus. You're a believer. You're in this church. Shortly after this, Shortly after this, about 156 A.D., there was a bishop named Polycarp. It was Bishop of Smyrna. He would, have been, he would have been probably one of John's pupils. Probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 years old when John dies. So Polycarp would have sat under John. Polycarp, one of the most famous martyrs of the early church, 
They bring him in, and they accuse him of all kind of blasphemy and so forth, and they bring him in, they're going to burn him at the stake, and it's a long trial, it's amazing at what happens. They, they, they start hollering, away with the atheist, away with the atheist, and they're calling him an atheist because he's denying the Roman gods. Polycarp looks at them and waves his hand at the stadium and says, away with you, atheist! And they say, Polycarp, you're going to deny the faith. You're going to turn your back on Christ. You're going to renounce this Christian thing. And Polycarp says something, and I'll paraphrase it. The famous saying, 80 and 6 years I've served my Lord, and He has never once failed me. I'm not about to blaspheme His name now. And they lit the fire and burned Him at the stake. That's Smyrna. Beautiful place. Wealthy place, one of the top cities in Asia Minor, loyal to Rome, emperor worship, you want it, you got it. But if you're a believer in Smyrna, you got choices to make. And there were some who made the right choice, some who decided, you know what, we're going to stay loyal to Christ. I'm sure there were others in Smyrna, other believers who got out of Dodge or caved or compromised in one way or the other. What are you going to do? You're going to deny Christ? You deny Him, then He denies you. Turn your back on Him? He was pretty clear about that. To make it, you have to find some way to overcome. You have to find some way to endure. Hebrews chapter 11, this great chapter of faith, and there's all these individuals that by faith followed God, and some of them suffered persecuted, put to death, and so forth. But yet the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 11, they were faithful, they were faithful, they were faithful. Then you get to chapter 12, and chapter 12 starts like this. You know what? Since you were surrounded by all this great cloud of witnesses, those who have gone before you, those who have already endured the persecutions, those who have already been put to death for their faith and trust in God, they're surrounding you like a cloud of witnesses. And the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, Now, run the race and run it with endurance. Run the race so that you endure. Run the race so that you can overcome. Now, emperor worship was a hindrance. It was a major hindrance. And as I said earlier, we may not be faced with emperor worship. At least not yet. Let me say this. And I, look, please, don't, don't think that I'm, I'm saying Trump is an emperor and Trump is you know, demanding to be worshipped. I'm not saying So please don't make a connection here. I only want to say this because when we were in Chicago and we're walking around Chicago and we walk up and there's Trump Tower and his name, huge on that building. And it, I don't know, it just sort of dawned on me, man, you know, our pres- this is our president and his name is on this building like that. Beautiful building and so forth. And, and just in, in the back of my mind, I thought that must have been something like what it might have been like in Rome. You go around and then all of a sudden there in Smyrna, there's this beautiful temple and it's got Tiberius's name. Again, I'm not saying Trump says go in there and stay and worship me. I'm not saying that. And you see something like that, and you link it to a leader like that. Man, it's like, wow. You know, it becomes very vivid. So we may not be faced with emperor worship, but there is cultural pressure, and it's growing and growing and growing and growing. There's family pressure, there's jobs, there's schools, and so forth. So how do we overcome? That's the question. 
I mean, that's what we need to see. What does he say to Smyrna? What does Jesus say to this church at Smyrna that could possibly help us overcome tomorrow? Or today, what, what does he say that could possibly help us in this pressure cooker? And the pressure is being turned up every day. Well, there's two characteristics here. There's two characteristics that Jesus points out about this church. Now, remember, nothing bad is said about this church. It's not that the church at Smyrna was perfect. They're not. It's just that he doesn't pull out anything bad here like he did with Ephesus, like he's going to do with the next church. He didn't say anything bad about them. Ephesus, you left your first love. Smyrna, you got to overcome. So here's what he says. Here's the first characteristics. Let's start uh, characteristic. Let's start in verse 8. He says, And to the angel of the church at Smyrna, write. The angel, again, I, I don't want to rehash this. I, I think the angel's the pastor, the elder of the church, and you are to write. You are to write this message. Again, write it. John's told, write this, send it to them in Smyrna. This, this local church of believers that are, that, that are in Smyrna. And he says this, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Now, every church is going to do this. Jesus is going to pull something out of that first chapter introduction. This comes from verses 17 and 18, where he pulls something out of that description, that vision of him in that first chapter. And he, and he applies it here and he, he brings it up and he says, this is who's writing to you. The first and the last. And we dealt with this. He is the beginning and the end. He is everything. He is eternal. And then he says, who was dead, or literally who became dead and came to life. Clear reference to his death, his resurrection. This is the one who's writing to you. This, this one is the one who is sending this message to you. And this is what he says. He says, I know your works. There's three things mentioned here. Let me say a word about the way they're laid out. Because each one has a definite article with it. And what does that mean? It would mean something like this. If I just said, hey, there's a man over there. Or how about I said, hey, the man is over there. Now, go back to your grammar days. You remember the difference? Hey, there's a man over there. Could be any man. But if I say, hey, there's a man, the man is over there. I mean, I could be talking about anyone, but I, I would be talking about someone specific. See the difference? Well, in Greek, it's the same way. Whenever they want, whenever the New Testament writers want to emphasize something just general, they don't put an article with it. But when they want to emphasize something specific, they put a definite article with it. The other thing that intensifies this is that it's singular. It's not plural. So it'd be like, hey, there are men over there. No, hey, the man is over there. See, it intensifies it. So this is what he says. I know your works. And here's the first thing. I know the tribulation. Now, again, remember, this is a center of emperor worship. There would have been those who were put to death. There would have been those who were imprisoned and so forth. In fact, he's going to tell them here in just a minute, guess what? Buckle up. More's coming. In fact, the way it's put is, you ain't seen nothing yet. Boy, that's encouraging, isn't it? Huh? 
So I know the tribulation and the poverty. But then he adds this. He adds this here. But you were rich. Now, the only way you can understand this is what we just sang earlier. Let the weak say I am strong. Let the poor say I am rich. How can the poor say they are rich? You have to understand this spiritually. You have to understand this of the riches found in Jesus Christ. Because if you're thinking purely in worldly terms, and if you're thinking purely in western terms, then you're going to go, wait a minute, poverty? The poverty? Something specific? They're probably ripping these Christians off. They're probably taking their lands. They're probably taking their houses. They're probably kicking them out of their houses. Firing them at their jobs. Taking their stuff. They're losing everything. I know the poverty. But you are rich. You've got to understand, you are rich. Don't tie yourself so to this world that you define your wealth purely in material terms. Because if you do, when you lose it all, what are you going to do? Now you guys, man, this, this city is beautiful. This city is rich. This city is one of the top cities. I know they're persecuting you. I know your poverty. I know they look at you and think, oh, that poor little insignificant group of people over there. What else do they have that we could take? Oh, those Christians over there, they just won't burn the incense. What's wrong with them? Don't they know? We just keep taking their stuff. But Jesus says to them, you are rich. Wouldn't you love to hear that from Christ? You have nothing. According to the world, you have nothing. By the world's standards, you have nothing. You don't have any power. You don't have any money. You don't have a name. But Jesus says you are rich. You individually, you may not think of yourself as anything. Who am I? What am I? I'm some little insignificant person in the big scheme of this world and so forth. But Christ comes to you personally. Not only does he say you are rich, but you know what else he says? You are mine. You are mine. What else do I need? I mean, really. What else do I need? So I know the tribulation, the poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy. Now this is something that's interesting here. I know the blasphemy, the slander. Blasphemy is actually not a good translation of the word. It's slander. It's not blasphemy like we think of blaspheming God. Like speaking against God. That's not what's going on here. This group, whoever they are, is slandering the Christians. That's what they're doing. They're slandering the Christians. And so he says, I know the blasphemy. I know the slander. And he identifies them here as those who say they are Jews and they're not. But they're of the synagogue of Satan. That's pretty strong language. This is our Lord speaking. Remember he told the Ephesians, I know you you don't like the Nicolaitans. Guess what? I hate them too. I hate that doctrine too. And now he's saying, he brings up this issue of Jews, and he says they're claiming to be Jews, but they're not. And, but they're really of the synagogue of Satan. In other words, they're not right. They're not true. They're false. Whatever they are, they're false. Well, then who in the world are they? Could this, just be, could this be the Jewish community? In Smyrna, there was a large Jewish community. There's a connection here with persecution. Let me lay this out for you this way. It could be that what they are saying is we are the people of God. These Christians are not. And it could be Jesus is saying, guess what? They're not the people of God. You are. 
They're really not. They're the synagogue of Satan. They miss the Messiah. This, is, this could be what Jesus is doing in John 8 when, when, when he's telling those Jews, and they're going, we're of our father Abraham. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You've missed me. You don't understand who I am. You're of your father, the devil. So that could be what, what, what's going on here. But there's something else that could be at play here. Because when you read through the book of Acts, who were the first persecutors of Christians? It wasn't Rome, it was the Jews. The Jews persecuted the Christians. Go through the first chapters of Acts and see it was Jewish over and over and over this persecution. Now, you've got to understand, how did Rome look at the Jews? The, Rome's, Rome, the Roman authorities look at, looked at Jews and they looked at Judaism and they looked at Israel, they looked at Jerusalem... When Rome would conquer a people, normally what would happen in the ancient world is a group comes in, conquers you, they take all your people and they take you back with them. And they destroy your gods and all your worship, all your temples. Because they don't, wor- they, they don't want you worshiping your gods. They want to just sort of indoctrinate you into their way of thinking. Rome didn't do that. What Rome did is they'd come in, take you over and say, hey, here's our gods. And gee, we like your gods too. Let's just have a big old God thing here. And that's what they would do. They demanded total loyalty, which is tied now in Smyrna to emperor worship, with the exception of one group of people. Guess who that was? It was the Jews. They did not demand that the Jews give up worshiping Yahweh. They did not demand that the Jews abandon their God and take their God. Now, Rome wasn't about to take their God. They will later. They weren't about it this time. They weren't about to do that. And so what they did is they said, you Jews just keep doing your thing. For one thing, they were scared to death of them because they were always rebelling. They were always causing trouble. But also, I think, too, probably in the providence of God. God's protecting his people, and then the Messiah comes, and we get to the first century, and what's happening? The church is birthed at Pentecost, and the early part of the church is mainly Jewish. Then guess what happened to the church? A bunch of Gentiles started coming in. And Paul starts writing things like there's no more Jew, there's no more Greek, there's no more Gentile, you know, and he starts talking about the Gentiles coming into the church, and he starts, all of a sudden, the church is taking on, it's not like this Jewish synagogue anymore, although they're doing some of the similar things, now all of a sudden the church is made up of all these people who have come in. And they're not just Jews. Well, as long as the church, as long as Christians were looked at like a denomination of Judaism, guess what the Romans did? The Romans left them alone. They left them alone. All this changed with Nero. And probably what was going on at the time is that the Jews, seeing this church and the makeup of the church, it's changing and they may have started saying to the Roman officials and maybe they're saying to Nero early on, Hey, look here, we are the Jews. They're not. You see why? So what does Rome do? Rome says, oh, okay, then they're not in this deal. And what did they start doing? They started going after the Christians. 
This happened first under Nero. He was the first. He was probably one of the worst. But Nero was local. It was in Rome only. But from Nero on, all the way up until Constantine. So for about 250 years, all the way up until the Emperor Constantine, when persecution stops, persecution starts and it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows. Now, there were some emperors who were worse than others. Domitian was a bad one. Nero, first, probably the worst of them all. Trajan, bad one. Caligula, crazy, madman, bad one. So I want you to understand this this little bit of history in this first century of what's happening. A separation is happening between the Christians and the Jews. Remember, where did they first go in Acts? They would go to the synagogue, preach the gospel. Where does Paul first go? Synagogue, preach the gospel. And then all of a sudden, there's this great break. The great break really comes in 70 AD when Rome finally marches in and destroys Jerusalem. Now there's a clear break between Christians and the Jews. And from that point on, the Romans went after them. And in a place like Smyrna, they went after them with vengeance. And it was tied to this thing called emperor worship. So it very well could be that this is what's behind what Jesus is saying. They claim to be Jews. They're not. They missed me. They missed the Messiah. They're actually a synagogue of Satan. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? Well, here comes the first characteristic. He says in verse 10, do not fear any of those things which, you're about, which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. and You will have tribulation 10 days. Man, that's encouraging, isn't it? You're suffering, but you're going to suffer some more. In fact, the devil's about to unleash something here. And some of you are going to be thrown into prison. Some of you may, some of you may not. But some of you probably will be thrown into prison and you all are going to suffer somewhat. You all are going to suffer. And notice how he puts it. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Well, hang on a second. I mean, is God just arbitrarily saying, hey, let's just see what this church is going to do and thrust them into persecution? Is he just arbitrarily saying, hey, let's pick one. Hey, Smyrna, you're up. Boom. No, it's not. Here's, here's the other thing that kind of... You, you, sort of gets under your skin about something like this when, when we see this, and we see it in other places in Scripture. If God is good and God is all-powerful and the devil is going to throw, him some, throw some of them into prison, then why did he stop it? Does he get his kicks out of watching his people suffer? So if he's good and all-powerful and he doesn't stop it, then he must not be good. Or... If he is all-powerful and he can't stop it, he's good and he's he's claiming to be all-powerful, but he can't stop the devil, then he's not all-powerful. Why do we need a God like that? See, that's an argument. That's a dilemma that atheists have used for years. When they look at evil and suffering in the world, that's an argument. That's a dilemma that they bring up all the time. Well, God is all-powerful, God is good, and God is in control. You notice how he puts this, the devil's going to throw some of you into prison? Don't fear, don't fear any of this stuff. He's going to throw some of you into prison, and you're going to be tested. There's purpose here. You're going to be tested. And also he says, and by the way, you will have tribulation ten days. You see the limitation here? 
It's not open-ended. Satan doesn't have free reign. It's going to be 10 days. Now, how do we take 10 days? Is it just a full amount? Is it 10 literal days? I don't know. The point is, what Jesus is saying to them is persecution is coming. You're going to suffer, but I'm in control of it. And it is only, there's a limit to it. The other thing to notice is that he's warning them. He's warning them. They didn't just wake up one morning and have this happen. Jesus, in his grace and mercy, is warning them. This is going to happen to some of you. This is what's about to happen to you. And, and really, you're just going to, have to, you're going to have to endure it. But don't fear it. Don't be afraid of it. See, the purpose in this is not to destroy you. The purpose in this is to test you. Let me ask you this. If your faith wasn't genuine, would you want to know it? I mean, you claim to be Christian, right? But what if your faith wasn't genuine? Would you want to know it? Or would you just say, I don't care. Just, I want to just continue on in the thing. Well, if you want to know it, then there's some tests. And one of the tests is what do you do when it gets tough? What do you do when you suffer? What do you do when the doctor says you've got cancer? What do you do when your wife says, I'm leaving you? Or your husband says, I'm leaving you? What do you do when your kids go nuts? What do you do when you walk in tomorrow and get fired? For no reason. What do you do when on the way home from church today? You've been at church of all places. You're not hanging out in a bar. You've been at church and there's a wreck, an accident. And on your way home from church, one of your kids is killed. Your wife is killed. Your husband's killed. What are you going to do? You're going to quit? You're going to get mad and blame God? I'm sure you would go through those emotions, but eventually are you going to come out of that? Are you going to see some purpose in this? Not just some random act of evil? What are you going to do if you send your son into the military and the government says, we're going to war? We're going to war. And you're going to be right in the middle of it. And you get a letter. Or you get a visit and says your son's been killed in action. What are you going to do? You're just going to quit? You're going to say, God, I didn't sign up for this. God, this is not what I thought you promised me. God, this is not how I thought it would turn out. My goodness, I didn't want any of this. I just thought I would come and get my ticket to heaven and have a nice life and... And then all of a sudden, bam, suffering happens. That's one thing. Not only that, but all of a sudden, bam, people that you thought were your friends all of a sudden hate you because you're a Christian. And they come over and try to burn your house down because you're a Christian. I mean, really, what are we going to do? If your faith was not genuine, you don't make it through that. You don't make it. You can't last. You see how this is a grace? Guys, you're about to have the privilege to find out if you're genuine or not.
I don't know about you, but I don't know that I would join a church. Could you imagine somebody visiting the Sunday before, you know? Hey, look, guys, next week the devil's going to throw some of us into prison. Don't worry, 10 days. And you're visiting that church. Are you going to join that Sunday? Are you going to say, sign me up? This is what I've been looking for all my life. I just want to join a bunch of people who are about to be persecuted. Now, this isn't very church growth friendly stuff, is it? But it's real. It's genuine. And it's where we live every day. Isn't it? You're reminded of James in chapter 1. Don't think it's strange when these things happen. What's happening? You're being tested. The genuineness of your faith. You think of 1 Peter chapter 1 when he talks about the suffering and the persecution and the trials that may come. And he says, look guys, understand this. You're being tested. There's purpose behind this. If I know there's purpose behind it, then that's one reason for me not to fear. You see that? If it's random acts of evil and God's not sovereign, then I wake up every day scared to death that I could lose it all. But if I wake up tomorrow and he takes it, I know there's a purpose in it. Don't fear it. Plus, don't tie yourself so close to this world that if it does happen, you throw a tizzy fit. Right? Don't tie yourself to this world. Don't lay up for yourself treasures here. What did Jesus say? Lay up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven. Right? So there's the first character characteristic. The second one the second one that he mentions is in verse 10 too. And by the way, these are imperatives. So don't fear is an imperative. Don't fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days. Here comes the second one. Be faithful. Be faithful unto death. Some of you may die. Some of you may not die. But if you do and you face death, be faithful unto death. Go all the way to the end. And he says, I will give you the crown of life. I will give you the crown of life. No fear and be faithful unto death if it comes to that. It's interesting the way he puts it. Be faithful unto death, until death. I mean, if you want to try to save your life, didn't Jesus say something like this? If you want to try to save your life here and now, what's going to happen? You're going to lose it, right? So if you're told persecution's coming and you go, I don't want any of this, I'm fixing to gap my stuff together, gather my stuff up, and I'm fixing to build a fence around my whole life, and you ain't getting in. And you save your life. And in the process, you deny Christ. Then guess what? You lose it. You see it? Isn't it an interesting paradox here? If you want to live, what? Die. You want the crown of life? Stick it out even if they kill you. You see the trade-off? Faithfulness now, life later. I mean, really when you look at it, and you begin to look at it in those terms, I mean, man, there's really not an option here, is there? There's really not an option here. So you need to be faithful. You need to be faithful unto death if it comes to that. And then what he says in verse 11, he says, he closes as he, as he does with the churches. He who has an ear, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, this, this goes to a larger audience than Smyrna. It's to us. He's saying this to us now. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And here he says, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. It's interesting he mentions second death here. It comes up again in Revelation chapter 20 and it comes up again in Revelation chapter 21. There in Revelation 20, the second place it occurs in chapter 20 and the, where it occurs in chapter 21, he's very clear in saying, what is the second death? Here's the second death. Second death is hell. The first death is physical death. We all will do that, right? We're all going to face that unless the Lord comes back. Well, we'll all face that, but we all don't have to face the second death. What is that? It's spiritual death. It's, it's hell. It's facing the wrath for all eternity. It's facing the wrath of God for all eternity. It's facing His wrath without a covering, without a Savior, with no hope. Jesus described it as a place where you just can't get your thirst quenched. It's a fire. It's burning. It's this horrible... It's not, it's not a good place. It's not a good place. But you overcome, and you don't have to face the second death. What's the obvious implication? If you're not genuine, you won't overcome. And if you don't overcome, and your faith is not genuine, you face the second death. How do I escape the second death? It's through Christ. My faith and trust in Him. I turn from my sin and put my faith and trust in Him. And I escape the second death. But if I don't do that, then I face the second death. And I face His wrath for all eternity. So, overcoming. How am I going to stick it out? How am I going to be able to stick it out here? What's the staying power? Well, ultimately, it's the grace of God that keeps me. I mean, ultimately. Jude says that we are kept for Jesus Christ. As he opens that letter, we are kept for Him. But then he'll come back and he'll say something like this. But keep yourself in the love of God. I'm kept, but yet I have to keep myself in the love of God. There's this interesting paradox going on there. He's going to keep me by His grace, but at the same time, I've got, I can't have any fear, and I've got to be faithful. There's God's sovereignty in keeping me, and yet there's the responsibility I have. I've got to live out the gospel every day. I don't know how to make those two merge together perfectly. I don't. They're both there. He's going to keep me. But i got to keep myself in His love. So i got to do it every day. And these two characteristics here. Don't fear, be faithful. But I want you to see again, there's purpose in this. There's purpose in it. There's purpose in a church being told you're about to suffer persecution because you're going to be tested. There's purpose in me personally being told something horrible that I don't want to hear and something is about to happen and something's coming by the way, let me ask you this. Here's another question. When is it okay to start talking about persecution? I'm talking about this country. In our context. When is it okay to start talking about persecution? That's exactly right. Now. It's appropriate now. Now, I don't want to be sort of like the boy crying wolf. Right? It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. It never happens and you go away going, oh. But there's an appropriate way to talk about it. And I think it is now. But there's purpose in it. If we're thrust into it, there's purpose in it. We need to look at two places and I'll close with this. Turn to Romans chapter 8. I need to show you two passages. I need to show you what Paul says. Romans chapter 8. This one will be very familiar. At least the first part of it. 
Romans chapter 8, this is what Paul says. He's talking in this section about suffering and the glory of God and how all this fits together and how it all works. And he says in verse 28, For we know that all things work together. Right? You know this. You can quote this. For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. We often stop there. But verse 29, For whom He foreknew... We don't have time to get into that. But for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Here's his sovereignty. Here's his foreknowledge, his sovereignty. And he is predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What's the purpose in the suffering? What's the purpose in the persecution? What's the purpose in the testing? It's what God has designed to conform you and I as believers to the image of His Son. How is He going to make us like Christ? He's going to thrust us into the furnace. And if He put the faith there, it's genuine and it will last and you will come out as pure gold. Now, I don't know about you, but that gives me sticking power. That gives me sticking power. One more place. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. This is the way Paul puts it to the Ephesians. This is what he says in verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to, uh, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. To the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us acceptable in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will. Even in suffering He's made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Himself. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather, listen to this, that he might gather together one and all, one all things in Christ. Both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In the end, conform to the image of His Son. For what purpose? Not for our glory. To the praise and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's purpose. That's what causes me not to fear. That's what gives me sticking power. When it gets tough, well, you know what they say, right? The tough get going. No. <laughs> the tough flee to Christ. The tough flee to Christ. Let goods and kindreds go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. But God's truth abideth still. You and I will lose nothing good.
Don't fear. Stick it out. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this day. This time that we've had in Your Word.